Hello and welcome to the Anglo-Saxons in their own words. My name is Danny. First of all, I want to apologize for the lack of episodes recently. I've been taking a couple of courses that have kept me extremely busy, and as such, podcasting has taken a bit of a backseat. However, I'm looking forward to having more of a regular schedule in upcoming weeks, and I hope to make good on my promise of doing these episodes regularly. Now, now that that's been said, let's get back to the Anglo-Saxons. Hopefully you're looking forward to this as much as I am. When we last left off, we were introduced to King Alfred the Great, and were told of his lineage and how the Pope anointed him to be king. Obviously, Alfred was a pretty special guy, and the Chronicle and Asser both want to make sure that future generations know how awesome of a king he was. They want it told that he was God's chosen king, destined to save England from the hands of the pagans. And that's what Bernard Cornwell and Netflix's The Last Kingdom want you to think too. But what made Alfred so great? I mean, really. What did he do that made him stand out among all the other Anglo-Saxon kings at the time? Well, part of that answer lies in the fact that we get most of our contemporary sources from the period straight out of Wessex. Meaning, we're going to hear a lot more about Alfred than we would about whoever was running East Anglia at the time. But with that being said, Asser and the Chronicle left us with some fantastic stories that undoubtedly give one the impression that Alfred really was a great king. Even if they are a little Alfred and Wessex biased, you have to admit upon reading some of these that Alfred must have been a remarkable person. Okay, enough preamble, let's jump into the sources. I've chosen just a small selection of what's been written about Alfred for now. I'll call it the highlight reel. Hopefully you enjoy. We start with Asser, using Dr. Giles' translation again. I think it right in this place briefly to relate as much as has come to my knowledge about the character of my revered Lord Alfred, King of the Anglo-Saxons, during the years that he was an infant and a boy. He was loved by his father and mother, and even by all the people, above all his brothers, and was educated together at the court of the king. As he advanced through the years of infancy and youth, his form appeared more comely than that of his brothers. In look, in speech, and in manners, he was more graceful than they. His noble nature implanted in him from his cradle a love of wisdom above all things. But, with shame be it spoken, by the unworthy neglect of his parents and nurses, he remained illiterate even till he was twelve years old. But, he listened with serious attention to the Saxon poems which he often heard recited, and easily retained them in his docile memory. He was a zealous practiser of hunting in all its branches, and hunted with great assiduity and success for skill and good fortune in this art, as in all others, are among the gifts of God. On a certain day, therefore, his mother was showing him and his brother a Saxon book of poetry, which she held in her hand, and said, Whichever of you shall the soonest learn this volume, shall have it for his own. Stimulated by these words, or rather by the divine inspiration, and allured by the beautifully illuminated letter at the beginning of the volume, he spoke before all his brothers, who, though his seniors in age, were not so in grace, and answered, Will you really give that book to one of us, that is to say, to him who can first understand and repeat it to you? At this his mother smiled with satisfaction, and confirmed what she had before said. Upon which, the boy took the book out of her hand, and went to his master to read it, and in due time, brought it to his mother and recited it. After this he learned the daily course, that is, the celebration of the hours, and afterwards certain psalms and several prayers, 
contained in a certain book which he kept day and night in his bosom, as we ourselves have seen, and carried about with him to assist his prayers amid all the bustle and business of this present life. But, sad to say, he could not gratify his most ardent wish to learn the liberal arts, because, as he said, there were no good teachers at the time in all the Saxon kingdoms. So that's a brief about Alfred's childhood and him being more good-looking than his brothers and also quicker to learn and just a really smart guy. He'd always had a love of learning, according to Asser. Now, Asser jumps around quite a bit um, when he tells the story of uh, King Alfred's life. He does kind of a chronological thing, going through year by year what happened in uh, Wessex. But he does jump around in terms of talking about Alfred before he was king. So we'll jump now to a section where he talks about uh, Alfred's marriage and also the sickness that ends up plaguing him for most of his life. His nuptials were honorably celebrated in Mercia among innumerable multitudes of people of both sexes, and after continual feasts, both by night and by day, he was immediately seized in presence of all the people by sudden and overwhelming pain, as yet unknown to all the physicians. For it was unknown to all who were then present, and even to those who daily see him up to the present time, which, sad to say, is the worst of all, that he should have protracted it so long from the twentieth to the fortieth year of his life, and even more than that, through the space of so many years, from what cause so great a malady arose. For many thought that this was occasioned by the favor and fascination of the people who surrounded him, others, by some spite of the devil, who is ever jealous of the good, others, from an unusual kind of fever. He had this sort of severe disease from his childhood, but once, divine providence so ordered it, that when he was on a visit to Cornwall for the sake of hunting, and had turned out of the road to pray in a certain chapel, in which rests the body of St. Girir, and now also St. Neot, for King Alfred was always from his infancy a frequent visitor of holy places for the sake of prayer and almsgiving, he prostrated himself for private devotion, and, after some time spent therein, he entreated of God's mercy, that in his boundless clemency he would exchange the torments of the malady which then afflicted him for some other, lighter disease, but with this condition, that such disease should not show itself outwardly in his body, lest he should be an object of contempt, and less able to benefit mankind. For he had great dread of leprosy or blindness, or any such complaint as makes men useless or contemptible when it afflicts them. When he had finished his prayers, he proceeded on his journey, and not long after he felt within him that by the hand of the Almighty he was healed, according to his request of his disorder, and that it was entirely eradicated. Although he had first had even this complaint in the flower of his youth, by his devout and pious prayers and supplications to Almighty God. For if I may be allowed to speak briefly, but in a somewhat preposterous order, of his zealous piety to God in the flower of his youth, before he entered the marriage state, he wished to strengthen his mind in the observance of God's commandments. For he perceived that he could with difficulty abstain from gratifying his carnal desires, and, because he feared the anger of God, if he should do anything contrary to his will, he used often to rise in the morning at the cockcrow and go to pray in the churches and at the relics of the saints. There he prostrated himself on the ground, and prayed that God in his mercy would strengthen his mind still more in his service, by some infirmity such as he might bear, but not such as would render him imbecile and contemptible in his worldly duties. And when he had often prayed with much devotion to this effect, after an interval of some time, Providence vouchsafed to afflict him with the above-named disease, 
which he bore long and painfully for many years, and even despaired of life, until he entirely got rid of it by his prayers. But, sad to say, it was replaced, as we have said, at his marriage, by another which incessantly tormented him, night and day, from the twentieth to the forty-fourth year of his life. But if ever, by God's mercy, he was relieved from this infirmity for a single day or night, yet the fear and dread of that dreadful malady never left him, but rendered him almost useless, as he thought, for every duty, whether human or divine. Okay, so now we know that Alfred was smart, that he was pious, and that he also endured a terrible sickness, and yet somehow managed to become King Alfred the Great. Let's jump to another of Asser's stories, where he starts to talk about Alfred in battle. In the year of our Lord's incarnation, 871, which was the 23rd of King Alfred's life, the pagan army of hateful memory left the East Angles and entering the kingdom of the West Saxons, came to the royal city called Reading, situated on the south bank of the Thames, in the district called Berkshire. And there, on the third day after their arrival, their earls, with great part of the army, scoured the country for plunder, while the others made a rampart between the rivers Thames and Kennet on the right side of the same royal city. They were encountered by Ethelwolf, Earl of Berkshire, with his men at a place called Anglefield. Both sides fought bravely and made long resistance. At length, one of the pagan earls was slain, and the greater part of the army destroyed, upon which the rest saved themselves by flight, and the Christians gained the victory. Four days afterwards, Ethelred, king of the West Saxons, and his brother Alfred, united their forces and marched to Reading, where, on their arrival, they cut to pieces the pagans whom they found outside the fortifications. But the pagans nevertheless sallied out from the gates, and a long and fierce engagement ensued. At last, grief to say, the Christians fled, the pagans obtained the victory, and the aforesaid Earl Ethelwolf was among the slain. Roused by this calamity, the Christians, in shame and indignation, within four days assembled all their forces, and again encountered the pagan army at a place called Ashdun, which means the Hill of the Ash. The pagans had divided themselves into two bodies and began to prepare defenses, for they had two kings and many earls, so they gave the middle part of the army to the two kings and the other part to all their earls, which the Christians perceiving divided their army also into two troops and also began to construct defenses. But Alfred, as we have been told by those who were present, and would not tell an untruth, marched up promptly with his men to give them battle. For King Ethelred remained a long time in his tent in prayer, hearing the Mass, and said that he would not leave it till the priest had done, or abandoned the divine protection for that of men. And he did so too, which afterwards availed him much with the Almighty, as we shall declare more fully in the sequel. Now the Christians had determined that King Ethelred with his men should attack the two pagan kings, but that his brother Alfred, with his troops, should take the chance of war against the two earls. Things being so arranged, the king remained a long time in prayer, and the pagans came up rapidly to fight. Then Alfred, though possessing a subordinate authority, could no longer support the troops of the enemy unless he retreated or charged upon them without waiting for his brother. At length, he bravely led his troops against the hostile army, as they had before arranged, but without awaiting his brother's arrival for he relied in the divine counsels, and forming his men into a dense phalanx, marched on at once to meet the foe. 
but here I must inform those who are ignorant of the fact that the field of battle was not equally advantageous to both parties. The pagans occupied the higher ground, and the Christians came up from below. There was also a single thorn tree of stunted growth, but we have ourselves never seen it. Around this tree, the opposing armies came together with loud shouts from all sides, the one party to pursue their wicked course, the other to fight for their lives, their dearest ties, and their country. And when both armies had fought long and bravely, at last the pagans, by the divine judgment, were no longer able to bear the attacks of the Christians, and having lost great part of their army, took to a disgraceful flight. One of their two kings and five earls were there slain, together with many thousand pagans, who fell on all sides, covering with their bodies the whole plain of Ashdun. There fell in that battle King Bagsack, Earl Sidrak the Elder, and Earl Sidrak the Younger, Earl Osborne, Earl Freyna, and Earl Harold, and the whole pagan army pursued its flight, not only until night, but until the next day, even until they reached the stronghold from which they had sailed. The Christians followed, slaying all they could reach, until it became dark. So at this point, Alfred's brother Ethelred is still the king of Wessex, but Alfred shows himself to be a capable warrior even taking it upon himself to lead a charge and to defeat the pagan armies. It's shortly after this battle that King Ethelred actually dies, and Alfred accedes to the throne. Asser writes, The same year, after Easter, the aforesaid King Ethelred, having bravely, honorably, and with good repute, governed his kingdom five years through much tribulation, went the way of all flesh, and was buried in Wimborne Minster, where he awaits the coming of the Lord and the first resurrection with the just. The same year, the aforesaid Alfred, who had been up to that time only of secondary rank whilst his brothers were alive, now, by God's permission, undertook the government of the whole kingdom amid the acclamations of all the people, and if he had chosen, he might have done so before, whilst his brother above named was still alive, for in wisdom and other qualities he surpassed all his brothers, and moreover, was warlike and victorious in all his wars. And when he had reigned one month, almost against his will, for he did not think he could alone sustain the multitude and ferocity of the pagans, though even during his brother's lives he had borne the woes of many, he fought a battle with a few men, and on very unequal terms, against all the army of the pagans at a hill called Wilton, on the south bank of the river Wiley, from which river the whole of that district is named. And after a long and fierce engagement, the pagans, seeing the danger they were in, and no longer able to bear the attack of their enemies, turned their backs and fled. But oh, shame to say, they deceived their two audacious pursuers, and again rallying, gained the victory. Let no one be surprised that the Christians had but a small number of men, for the Saxons had been worn out by eight battles in one year against the pagans, of whom they had slain one king, nine dukes, and innumerable troops of soldiers, besides endless skirmishes, both night and by day, in which the oft-named Alfred and all his chieftains, with their men and several of his ministers, were engaged without rest or cessation against the pagans. How many thousand pagans fell in these numberless skirmishes, God alone knows, over and above those who were slain in the eight battles above mentioned. In the same year, the Saxons made peace with the pagans, on condition that they should take their departure, and they did so. Okay, so Alfred is now king of Wessex. And he appears to put the pagans to flight at first, 
but it turns out that the Saxons actually lost the battle. However, Asser does make some pretty good excuses for why they would lose at this point, because they fought so many battles, and at the end of the day, they've killed so many pagans, it doesn't matter that they lost this one battle, at least according to Asser. We're going to turn now to the Chronicle and the year 878 to hear another of Alfred's victories. This year, about midwinter, after Twelfth Night, the Danish army stole out to Chippenham and rode over the land of the West Saxons where they settled and drove many of the people over sea, and of the rest, the greatest part they rode down and subdued to their will. And then, in all capitals, all but Alfred the king. He, with a little band, uneasily sought the woods and the fastnesses of the moors, and in the winter of this same year, the brother of Ingmar and Hafden landed in Wessex and Devonshire, with three and twenty ships, and there was he slain, and eight hundred men with him, and forty of his army. There also was taken the war flag, which they called the Raven. In the Easter of this year, King Alfred, with his little force, raised a work at Athelney, from which he assailed the army, assisted by that part of Somersetshire, which was nighest to it. Then, in the seventh week after Easter, he rode to Brixton, by the eastern side of Selwood, and there came out to meet him all the people of Somersetshire and Wiltshire, and all that part of Hampshire, which is on this side of the sea, and they rejoiced to see him. When within one night he went from this retreat to Hay, and within one night after he proceeded to Headington, and there fought with all the army, and put them to flight, riding after them as far as the fortress, where he remained a fortnight. Then the army gave him hostages with many oaths that they would go out of his kingdom. They told him also that their king would receive baptism, and they acted accordingly, for in the course of three weeks after, King Guthrum, attended by some thirty of the worthiest men that were in the army, came to him at Aller, which is near Athelney, and there the king became his sponsor in baptism, and his chrism leasing was at Wedmore. He was there twelve nights with the king, who honored him and his attendants with many presents. So for a brief time, Alfred's actually forced out of his kingdom. And I'm sure many of you, if you're listening to this, have heard of Alfred in the Somerset Marshes. You've probably also heard the story of the cakes burning. If you haven't, I suggest you look that one up. But now Alfred comes back after winning a ferocious battle. He's regained his kingdom. And he's not only great for winning that battle, but he's great because he's gracious. And he actually sponsors King Guthrum of the Danish army to become baptized, and then honors Guthrum and all who were with him with feasting and presents. It's pretty interesting. And I have to say, it is a pretty Christ like comparison. Okay, we're almost done, but I've got one more story from you guys from Asser. Now the king was pierced with many nails of tribulation, though placed in the royal seat. For from the twentieth year of his age to the present year, which is his fortieth, he has been constantly afflicted with most severe attacks of an unknown complaint, so that he has not a moment's ease either from suffering the pain which it causes, or from the gloom which is thrown over him by the apprehension of its coming. Moreover, the constant invasions of foreign nations, by which he was continuously harassed by land and sea, without any interval of quiet, were a just cause of disquiet. What shall I say of his repeated expeditions against the pagans, his war, and incessant occupations of government? 
of the daily embassies sent to him by foreign nations, from the Tyrrhenian Sea to the farthest end of Ireland. For we have seen and read letters, accompanied with presents, which were sent to him by Abel the patriarch of Jerusalem. What shall I say of the cities and towns which he restored, and of others which he built, where none had been before? Of the royal halls and chambers, wonderfully erected by his command with stone and wood. Of the royal villas constructed of stone, removed from their old site, and handsomely rebuilt by the king's command in more fitting places. Besides the disease above mentioned, he was disturbed by the quarrels of his friends, who would voluntarily endure little or no toil, though it was for the common necessity of the kingdom. But he alone, sustained by the divine aid like a skillful pilot, strove to steer his ship, laden with much wealth, into the safe and much-desired harbour of his country. Though almost all his crew were tired, and suffered them not to faint or hesitate, though sailing amid the manifold waves and eddies of this present life. So there you have it. That's the last story I'll share uh, from Asser's Life of Alfred. It's believed by a lot of modern scholars that Alfred had what is called Crohn's disease, meaning that he had some digestive issues and he couldn't eat certain things and that he would be basically racked with pain if he were to ever eat something that he shouldn't have. But he couldn't have known what this was or what was causing him this pain, and nobody really would have known at this period in time. But he endured all that at the same time for 24 years, I guess it would be, as Asser's written, which in itself is a great achievement. I think from these stories, you have to at least see why from the perspective of the Anglo-Saxons, those who were around to witness some of these things, and those who would read and hear tell of Alfred's deeds later, that he'd become a revered figure. I, for one, hold no doubts that Alfred really was great. To be written about at all in medieval times, by anyone, was a huge accomplishment. I mean, even if you pay someone to write down all the good things you did, you still had to have done something, and you had to have a lot of resources to be able to call on learned men to record your stories. So there, if you didn't know much about King Alfred and his exploits before, or if you had heard some of these stories but never directly from the primary source texts, I hope this gave you some insight into who Alfred was, and why he was great. Asser certainly does a good job of making Alfred out to be a man's man, even a renaissance man if you will. He was fierce in battle, a strong leader, and yet pious and submissive to God. He was a skilled hunter, but a lover of poetry and of learning. He was the whole package. As I said when I started this podcast, there is something to be gleaned from taking our ancestors' word for some things. And I think that the reason we still talk about Alfred so much today, the reason he was given the title of the Great, is simply because he was a great man in his time. The leader Wessex needed, perhaps not the one they deserved. Alright, that's it for me today guys. I hope you enjoyed these stories about King Alfred. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at theanglosaxonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.